0: In effect, the distance of penetration into understanding and into depth of understanding depends on one's maturity, not in the sense of growing up in some kind of autonomous sanctification, which is a contradiction in terms, but a maturity in terms of faith in Christ. Our distance of penetration, our depth of understanding depends on maturity or our cleverness of discrimination leading to a false solution. Okay, so, the point then is to think about the fact that the parables are not in every respect transparent. That might be part of the purpose of God. Point four, the Colonel Husk fallacy. There is a thinking, which I think is a fallacious thinking, that reasons like this, that the story as it stands about a shepherd and a sheep and one getting lost and so on is the husk of, you know what I'm talking about, right? A corn on a cob, right? And you, the husk is the outer thing that you meet first. And then you peel it off in order to get to the nourishing edible part, right? And the thinking goes... The simple story is the husk which one peels off by interpretation until one arrives at the meaning. <laughs> that is, that God rejoices, and seeks out and rejoices over the salvation of one lost sinner. There's the meaning. And that, once I have arrived at the meaning, and that now let me be clear, that is the meaning of the parable, all right, or at least part of the meaning, once one arrives at it, then one throws away the husk. <laughs> I see Matt yeah, the, the, that's right. I agree with, with that Matt is reacting. No, you don't throw away, because it isn't the kernel and it isn't the husk. The whole model of penetrating to this inner thing so you can throw away the outward form and this rigid distinction between the form and meaning will not work with parables. It's not form and meaning, but it's all meaning and it's all form. <laughs> uh, it's woven together. And the form, you might say, to put it provocatively, is part of the essence of the parable. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't summarize the meaning, as I just did with the parable of the lost sheep. Okay? And Jesus himself, in this case, it, it becomes even easier to see that that's okay, because Jesus himself gave in that one verse, verse 7, He gave a summary of its meaning. But if you see, you just stop with the summary and say, now I can dispense with the outward story, you miss the fact that the the form is designed to be part of the whole thing. It is the, The full texture involves appreciating it is delivered in a certain manner in order to have certain impact. And this thing, a lot of the things we've talked about, the provocation, the asking the reader to judge himself, the differences of different audience, they disappear if you just have one of these simple one-sentence pro summaries. It's all right to have the summary as long as you realize that's only part of the edible material, right? The whole thing is edible, (laughs) The whole thing is meant to be received as it is and not simply, you know, discarding a part. And you see, I think the temptation may be of past generations and, you know, some people more than others. So there's a certain kind of very logical and very sort of uh, systematic kind of thinking that, that wants to get through with the parables beyond them to something else. Right? And I'm saying, yes, you can summarize the parables. You can get to something uh, that uh, is, can be said in prose terms, and it's all right to do that over against the extremes that people who make everything so mysterious you can't really say anything. So you can do that, but that's not all there is. appreciate, then, that the full, the full texture, including the story form, including everything about the parable, is part of the Word of God as it's delivered to us and is not to be sort of then gone beyond, right? It's just the full thing is edible. Okay, now, well, we're approaching the end of our two-hour time together. Analogical analysis. I'm going to, um, and some of you maybe had a hint of this in the Hermeneutics course, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how we may organize our thinking about parables at least part of it it's only part of it because there are these th- all these things I've told you to watch for but part of it at least particularly with allegorical par- parables that I, as I've defined them, is appreciating the relationship between the story and what the story points to so one way of sort of thinking through that is by using a chart. And I'm going to try to teach you this, not because it's ultimate, right? It, uh, ultimately, you have to get back to the parable itself, but because it can be a way of methodically thinking through the various aspects of a parable. And here's what you do. First of all, and I'll illustrate with the parable of the lost sheep again, because it's a familiar parable. Bear with me if you remember some of this from hermeneutics, but we're going to do it a little more elaborately. You make a number of columns, and the first column is going to be called, and this will be from Luke, in this case, fifteen three to 7. The first column is going to be the story, or we might call it the simple story, that is if you didn't know that it had a level of symbolic meaning, or if you push that symbolic meaning into the background, you read through the story, and what you do is list important props, characters, and events. Props, a prop is not a person, but it's something like, well, a sheep is a little more than a prop maybe, but it can be a chair, it can be a setting. Usually those aren't too important. They're often just colorful details. But on occasion they may be significant. So anytime you suspect even that this might be significant you list it. Props, personages, actors, and, and events. Okay? So then Jesus told them this parable. Four. Suppose one of you All right? So the first thing is one of you. And basically pictured as shepherd. as we know the story goes on. Right? This is one of the characters. One of you has a hundred sheep. That's the next thing. All right? And loses one of them. So now this is both. Now if I really... It's a question of how much detail you want. You could both put... The particular, it's not a personage, but it's a, like a proper actor. This is one sheep, right? And then the event is that it gets lost. So you could divide that in two. Does he not leave the 99? There's an action. Now, the 99 become, in effect, a separate focus, right, within the 100. So you could distinguish that if you want. In the open country, shall I list the open country? Maybe. Maybe, right? But that may be just one of these colorful details. And go after the lost sheep, all right? So it goes after, goes out for it, uh, all right? And so on. So first you have the simple story. And then the second column, you will have typically God's action in his kingdom in Jesus' ministry, if we want to be more particular, which will usually be the primary focus of symbolic meaning. The kingdom of heaven is like, you see, you're really setting it up here. And you know that the kingdom is not just God rules over all the world forever and ever, which he does, but specifically the activity of, of eschatological salvation. So this is a very key column, right? What you do here is the major determiner, but you wanna think through, not all of these things may have separate symbolic meanings, right, because I'm, see, I'm repudiating, as a matter of principle, saying that there, there's a must, there's an obligation. And I'm using the two evidence rule or suggesting you use it as a starting point, but I think your instincts, intuitively, will probably be just as good. (laughs) But it comes in after the fact, right? You're thinking through maybe one of these things has significance, and maybe it's more on the level of colloquial detail. So now we're out of time this time. We'll attempt to come back to that. But it's a way, basically, of thinking when we've got this analogical structure thinking through what are the correspondences? We have got uh, Roman numeral 3 still on parables, and we're, we're, we are getting near the end. <laughs> uh, analogical analysis is where we are. Uh, chart the main analogies. And uh, I was using the example of the parable of the lost sheep. So, basically... The situation is like this, that I had the simple story or the, you know, the direct level, and then in that any props, characters, or events listed one by one, all right? And so there's a hundred, well, there's a shepherd, right? he's called just a man, right? I think he's the first one introduced, and then a hundred sheep, and then one, uh, one is gets lost, so there's an event. Yeah, right, and so on. And then, in this column is the key one, uh, usually, for most of the parables, kingdom of God as manifest in Jesus' earthly ministry. If I'm right, and Ritterboss and have quite a few other people, in, in arguing that... Uh, the focus is often on that. But there are often uh, other dimensions to at least some of these elements. Maybe not all of them, even, that have symbolic uh, meaning. But put something, put a column for many of the parables. There is some kind of Old Testament background. A parable of the lost sheep, there are some significant things in Ezekiel 34, more than any other passage, Jeremiah 23, parts of it are relevant as well. Ezekiel 34 talks about the false shepherds of Israel, Jeremiah 23 likewise. And God who comes as I will be the shepherd and David will be the shepherd in the last part of the passage. And the sheep, well, not specifically a hundred of them right but sheep in general correspond to a people of Israel so what I want to do in this column is to list together with a verse number all right and I put here leaders the shepherds are leaders of Israel false shepherds often and then God who is the shepherd and then David you can see a messianic element you see that looking forward to Jesus as the true shepherd. Now, in effect, what I'm saying here, and another interesting thing, of course, that many people don't realize about the parable is the way in which it indicts the Jewish leaders because they should have been shepherds who were, in effect, going after the lost and taking care of them. And, in fact, there is a, their mention of sheep getting lost, among other things. They get sick and injured and other things, but... It is there in one of the verses. I won't bog us down with the details. But the point is then, we're looking for Old Testament correspondences. Now, even if you make a list, then you still have to judge, are they significant? So partly this is sort of rummaging through the concordance and through your mind for materials which may or may not be relevant, and then standing back afterwards And saying, is this in fact relevant? And so it's partly an accumulation of information stage and partly an evaluation stage. Not all of it, you know, some of it may not be relevant. How do you tell it's salient connections? But, you know, that is a matter of judgment. But it's things that you would sense will sort of stand out in people's minds if they know their Old Testament well. Now, there may also be other columns depending on the parable. I won't guarantee there will be an Old Testament background in every instance. some instances may just you know take off in a fresh direction though um, you can see there's a lot of parables for instance about masters and servants well uh, that is a fairly creative thing on Jesus' part, and yet there is some background in that Israel is viewed as a servant of God and the prophets as servants of God in the Old Testament. So, um, and of course, that would be, you know, what I would call class evidence, even if it's a regular thing in other parables of Jesus, so it's already established, Then that, that uh, makes you anticipate it in a given parable. So this may not be true for all parables, but it's worth looking at to see whether it's there. And there may be other things that I found. Now, uh, well, maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself. Uh, the parable of the banquet in Luke 14, 15 to 24, what I found is the following columns being useful. Simple story Then God's action in Jesus' earthly ministry. Then God's action in the Old Testament. There are some allusions to a final feast. The king in the Old Testament. There are human banquets. Now, that may or may not be relevant, but it may be relevant mostly on, as it were, a sociological plane of seeing what people thought of these things socially. And I've got actually an additional column, the second coming. There's a sense in which the banquet already begins in fellowship with Christ during his earthly life and surely then union with Christ in the um, post-Pentecost era. But is there a forward looking to the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the final feast of the consummation, maybe so there's an example where, how many columns is that already? That's about five columns, some of which may be more interesting and more directly relevant to the parable than others. In this one, you may ask whether there's a specific application to, um, let's say, under shepherds in the church. In fact, that is a reasonable application, but I don't think it's very directly in mind in Luke. However, there is a parable in Matthew 18 about a lost sheep. And you look at the context of Matthew 18, the context is this thing of your brother's sins against you, and uh, the children of my father who cared for by the angels, and it's It is a much more uh, pastorally directed context. So, um, and it raises the question, of course, did Jesus tell one parable, and Matthew and Luke said it differently to indicate different direction of application, both of which directions would be legitimate, or was it two different parables told at two different times? I don't think you can prove it one way or the other. It might well have been two different parables at two different times. This being, for one thing, such a a logical subject to take up, Uh, and Jesus being an itinerant preacher. I mean, he went around from from, uh, village to village and town to town, and uh, the people who have done this in modern times say uh, it is foolish not to repeat yourself, <laughs> right? To use some of the same material again. Uh, so, um, you know, that again fouls up any kind of source criticism, right? Because you, uh, you have material which may look very, very similar uh, simply because it was preached twice. So, anyway... That gives you an example of what might be done. Now, uh, what do you do? Uh, I, my suggestion is fill out these columns as a way of brainstorming, as it were, as a way of collecting information. Then, make your judgments. And uh, right, here's my outline. And so this falls under I number 2, use the two evidence rule with details. That is, not everything that's a detail in this story may correspond to a unique symbolic meaning. So that's a way of reining in the tendencies to, to overread certain or imaginatively read certain details. And I suppose, you know, you could do something analogous. I haven't really looked at it um, to test whether you could use something like a two-evidence rule for dealing with these things, too. It would be a little harder because this thing is almost surely, for most parables, the main focus. It's a little easier to tell what's going on, and this is a little, even the Old Testament background could be iffy, not some, some features being pretty plain at are part of background, but others not. So so the second column is the Kingdom of God in Jesus earthly ministry. That is over and over again the main focus of the actual thrust of the parable. And so that's the primary area where you want to, in effect, you're writing things tentatively that might correspond, and then at a second level checking these off of saying some Work and are plausible, others there isn't really enough evidence for. Uh, and three, encapsulate the main point. Now I seem to be going back to our old friend, the uh, single point theory, but there's a grain of truth in the single point theory. I think it underestimated the degree to which there might be micro meanings, what Boucher calls the micro meanings. And uh, Riken, as a a student of literature uh, agrees that the thing may have any number of correspondences in principle, but there usually is a main point, and the micro meanings uh, are, you know, contributing to that. And you, people who've been in hermeneutics, know that. Uh, when I'm talking about sermon preparation, I urge you, <coughs> well, and even an analysis of a biblical, theological, and exegetical analysis, asking yourself what is the main point in order to not lose sight of uh, main thrust in the details that you're massing. Now often, this main point will also be at the climax of the resolution of the plot structure. Now, almost always with a story, a non-fictional story, that climax and resolution will be where the main things, particularly the resolution, where the main point is being made. Although I think I said something about uh, outcome, further things, because it's precisely because they don't need to be there. If they are there, often show something. In a parable, I think that's a little iffier simply because the parable is a constructed story and there may be other things going on like these things of provoking thought and so on. So that just saying everything is linked to this resolution of tension may not always be true, but look for it anyway. Ask yourself what's accomplished at the point of resolution of a parable. Although again, if you were in hermeneutics, Depends on what year you were there, because some years I've had time to talk about something like the parable of the uh, fig tree in the vineyard that has no resolution. It's left in midstream. You never hear what happens. And that's effective too. But it's effective because, because the audience is left to have to complete the story. And perhaps we'll come back to that if there's time. But anyway, you want to uh, wrestle with what, if there's something of a main point, and if there's, uh, there is some suggestion of uh, direct interpretation of the parable, certainly, to use that. Uh, the parable of the lost sheep, in fact, has one verse, final verse, seven, which is an interpretation rather than an actual part of the story. And that, of course, it's smaller than the story was and helps you to discern what the main point is. All right. Fourth, display any significant ramified meanings. Now, I introduced that term without really explaining it, But here's what I have in mind. If I can find my chalk. remember with the parable of the sower, we had these circles. And one is the parable is about itself. That's the narrowest meaning. And the very giving of the parable in action acts out the meanings, right? Because some people with the parable of the soul, it's obvious the disciples come and ask Jesus and get more, and the crowds are left in in relative uh, darkness or at least less. Then, is it a parable about parables, right? And then... About Jesus' ministry more broadly, right, which includes more than parables, but certainly parables being a significant part of it. And then within that, the climax of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we got one, two, three, four potential areas to look at. And then gospel ministry in the. Uh, Inaugurated eschatological age that we're in right now, and then a sort of cosmic and and a creational even context, right? Where often you can see there is an organic relationship between seed in the literal sense and the Word of God, or masters and servants in the relationship to one another, or sheep, whatever the excuse me, whatever the literal story is about. That also is within the scope of divine um, ordination superintendence. So the ramified meanings, what I mean by this are, in effect, the applications of the parable at these various levels. Not as one, two, three, four, five, six distinct meanings utterly unrelated to one another, no. (laughs) Right But rather, in unity, because all of this is about the Word of God and the action of God in history, but it's more or less focused, more or less broad. So there is an organic relationship which but you still want to think through, and you want to think through in terms of application here, right? If you're going to preach on it anyway. you want to think through that anyway. So um, you're best off thinking through that in uh, terms of the organic unity of the different aspects of meaning. All right, so that uh, diagram of those circles may be of help. I'm not saying it'll be of equal help with any parable, but it's worth looking at. And fifth, look for an upsetting twist in the meaning. And we've talked about that, right, of Is there something surprising? Is there something upsetting? Is there something that overthrows an initial impression or is otherwise um, a surprise? Uh, The parable of the lost sheep, let's do that. Really, I'm backing up a little bit uh, to illustrate this ramified meaning. Uh, And uh, rather than start at the innermost circle, start at the most obvious level. It's about Jesus' earthly ministry, is it? Well, uh, the parable of the lost sheep is one of those things which by its setting makes clear that it is. Because the setting, immediate context, is 15.1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, It's a response, pretty clearly, to that uh, muttering and accusation. And as such, then, is really addressing what Jesus is doing in his own earthly ministry. So that is pretty clear that it has to focus that way. Uh, So that's uh, sort of this, uh, one of the middle circles. Uh, And if you want to have that on a nice, neat outline. Uh, under, it'll be I4A, all right? B, is the parable applicable to the coming of the gospel in any age or particularly this New Testament or, you know, the post-Pentecost age in which we now live? Well, God seeks the lost and rejoices in finding them. That's true, presumably, even in the Old Testament era, but preeminently in this day of salvation, right, where the gospel goes to the nations. There's this vast outreach which makes it even more focal that God is seeking the lost. C, is it about the plan of God from creation to consummation? Well, God goes after a lost world. Uh, John six, uh, 3.16, a famous uh, verse of God so loved the world. Well, it's preeminently the world as lost world of humanity, but uh, the world, uh, because of Adam's central role and humanity's central role, uh, the world, even of subhuman creation, is indirectly affected by the fall. And the care of human shepherds for literal sheep is part of God's care for his creation. After all, you know, God cares for the grass of the field, Jesus says, well, he cares for human sheep, or, or, sorry, for literal sheep that are taken through the instrumentality, typically, of human shepherds. So uh, that, presumably, is part of this overall picture of God's care, which is comprehensive. So even, again, you see the organic unity between the the literal level of human shepherds with uh, literal sheep and the uh, analogical spiritual level. Uh, So that's C. D, is it about Jesus' ministry... In parables, well, yes, in that there's this parable of the sower about seeing and seeing but not perceiving, and hearing, hearing, not understanding, and then the Matthean version saying because they don't understand he speaks to them in parables, is it a ministry that seeks after the lost by challenging sort of... Uh, encrusted ways of thinking. Presumably there's some of that, but I think the most appropriate uh, way of seeing it is actually not in Jesus' parabolical ministry, though it's probably there, but in his fellowship with sinners, which, of course, is the thing that uh, is the immediate context, right? So it's illustrated in one concrete form in Jesus' earthly life. And E, what about this particular parable? I think in this parable, Jesus is seeking out lost Pharisees. (laughs) And it's confirmed by the parable of the lost son, the third parable, which is more telling because it's more direct because it has an elder son. And the elder son being the picture of the Pharisaic critic. And the son is outside and the father's entreating him to come in, which is exactly what Jesus is doing, you see. He's saying there's you know, the door is still open, come on into the feast. <laughs> and he hasn't given up on them, at least not in every respect, you know, and there were people like Nicodemus, of course, who, who were ultimately converted. So uh, the, there is a kind of self-referential element, less, I admit, for the parable of the lost sheep than the parable of the lost son, it's more direct. But of course, the parable of the lost sheep is headed that way, Already, and I mentioned this thing of are there 99 righteous, you know, which begins to undermine Pharisaic self confidence if they take it serious. And finally, and this would be F, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection are they in any sense the climax of this parable? Yes, in the sense that the the seeking of the lost climaxes with seeking them even to the point of identifying with them in death, right? Of going down to death in order to rescue them from death and going, identifying with sin to rescue them from sin. So that is where the parable is headed. Jesus himself is the seeker at the moment when the parable is uttered. He's seeking the lost Pharisee. God as creator is seeking after a fallen world order, right? Humanity being at the center of that, but, but the corruptions and the effects on the larger world being the larger context. So again, uh, underlying it is Jesus as divine shepherd and then also as human shepherd because he is representative man and representative of what the Pharisees should have been doing, but were not. Is there a twist in the meaning of this parable? Yes, because of, at least in, I think, in this area of who are the righteous, the 99. <laughs> there's, a, there's the twist and sense of undermining an initial impression, well, the, the uh, Pharisees are, you know, they're okay even if uh, there are some who are lost. And it turns out they're not so okay as they might think. So look for that kind of thing. Uh, another example... Luke 14, and I'm going to have to, well, let me do one more example. I mean, this is rather, the trouble is this is rather too mechanical, but I at least want to illustrate it. Although I want to leave open that some parables may not work this way. They may work other ways and you have to follow them wherever they lead. But the parable of the banquet in Luke 14:15 to 24, which I've already mentioned, uh, let's look at it, and I'll at least sketch how you might apply some of the same schemas to it. Uh, Luke 14:15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, "Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God." Jesus replied, "A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests." At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blame, blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but still there is room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Well, we could draw up a chart. I've already indicated some of the uh, columns I would have. But let's do the ramified levels of meaning. Uh, so, in effect, chart the main analogies, use the two evidence rule, and I think you can see how that would work. Uh, three, encapsulate the main point. Well, we'd have to go through those things to really make sure of it, but the main point is surely come to the banquet and don't reject the invitation that you've already accepted, in fact. Now, there's something about the first century customs, and I mentioned it in hermeneutics class, but for, to recall it to you. Uh, at least uh, when people, and it would have to be the sort of the upper side of society they even gave banquets because you had to be well-to-do. And the customs of that part of the society were that you would send out invitations, weeks even ahead of time, and people would respond and say, yes, I can or "Can I come then on the day of the banquet, there would be enormous preparations uh, of uh, food and and so on. And then when everything is ready, you send the servant around, not to everybody, but to the people who have already said yes. So it's not quite, I think, what a modern reader, you know, unaware of those customs, might think of it. So it is basically Uh, come to the banquet of the kingdom, which is now opening through the ministry of Jesus. And now we've got um, the beginning of our ramified meaning under 4a. Applied to Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus himself is sending out, in effect, the invitation to preeminently the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation already being, by their Jewishness, having implicitly said, yes, we're gonna be there. Nobody else now, maybe these unclean, pagan, idolatrous Gentiles, right, who reject God, but we are, we are the people of God. We will be there, and when the Messiah comes, you know, then, then will be the time for our vindication, for our acceptance and the happiness forever in God's kingdom. That's, that is a sort of popular Jewish way of thinking. So Jesus is sending out the invitation to the Jewish nation. In effect, God's feast is about to begin, and it will begin. Well, now we get into some specifics. Will it begin with the Last Supper? See, Because things are headed toward the crucifixion and the resurrection. And if that's the focus, then it's fairly easy to see that those who were invited are making excuses, at least some of them. And it is the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It is the despised part of the Jewish nation that is coming in, you know, and Jesus elsewhere. And again, this is comparing teaching with teaching, right? Jesus elsewhere is saying prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So that fits as well. And not only the poor and the blind and the lame... But going out to the roads and the country lanes, now that, you know, if you want a symbolic meaning, that's the Gentiles. That's the people you go out, basically, where where a person giving a feast, typically, would give it for the townspeople, you see, his friends and relatives in the town. He wouldn't go any further out than that, right? So likewise, God's not going to go any further out than the Jewish nation, or is he, you see? So there's, there's that reaching out, B, as applied to gospel ministry in any age, well, there is a general principle I think you can see that people with privilege turn down the invitation to come to God often because of worldly cares or because of self-satisfaction, right? And there's lessons about the snares of riches and other things. So there's a general principle there. But it may be more particular than that that it's often the people who think of themselves as doing okay in this life, even religiously, which is the Pharisees' problem, who find it difficult to humble themselves, whereas notorious sinners, uh, some of them are at least aware that they're sinners. (laughs) Uh, So. There is a broader principle, and it might even apply, you see, it's something to shake uh, uh, churchgoers out of their complacency because there's always the danger even for people who are professing Christians and people, some of whom, many of whom are genuine Christians, even they sink into a kind of complacency where, where their own sense of the grace of God is dimmed or compromised. The unworthy... are are accepted, the unwashed. C, can we apply this picture to the total structure up to the consummation? Well, there is the feast at the consummation and God issues, as it were, a call, and this is the word of God going out to the whole cosmos, to the human uh, constituents of the cosmos preeminently, but to the whole cosmos, he issues a call to the consummation. How? By providing ordinary food. You know, there's general revelation, right? He satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, at the, uh, Paul's sermon to the, what was it? Uh, at one of the uh, uh, Galatian and uh, um, Pisidian area cities. There is a creational feast right now though it's a feast may be overdoing it, right? But there is food being provided by God now as a foretaste of that final feast. So in effect, I'm integrating the ordinary level of eating food with the spiritual level of the spiritual food which Jesus, of course, vocally provides. D, as applied to Jesus' parables, Well, the parables are announcements of the kingdom and therefore in one way or another associated with invitations to God's new kingdom and to the feast of that kingdom. But E, can you apply it to this parable? And the fact is that this parable itself in a very pointed way is an invitation to the feast. It is an invitation which also is in danger of being turned down at the very moment when Jesus is uttering it. You see, if you don't recognize the validity of his claims and the integrity of his ministry, you are in danger of missing the point that you should become a follower now (laughs) and enter into the fellowship of that feast even now. And then F, the climax in the crucifixion and resurrection, ultimately, The invitation to join God's feast is offered in the crucifixion and the resurrection as public events. Right in the midst of the Jewish people is offered to the Jews, and of course the gospel is preached to the Jews beginning from Jerusalem. And so I think there is a relationship between this and, for instance, the material in John 6, 32 to 40, I am the bread of life, that material there. Is there a twist in the meaning? This is going on beyond the uh, ramified meanings. I think there is an element, maybe not as strong as in some of the parables, but there's an element of provocation in the fact that these people who have been invited and presumably according to the customs of time, have already said yes, that they are turning down the thing with what may to us look like legitimate excuses, but if you know beforehand when the thing is gonna be, then why in the world do you go and get married, or if you are married, didn't you work that into your schedule, right? Is that, <laughs> see, so that, it's a flimsy excuse given the culture of the time, and the people would have been somewhat shocked, right? This is not the way a normal reaction of people invited to the feast would be. You either turn it down Weeks earlier, when the invitation is originally given, but once you have committed yourself, you don't. It's a it's a highly insulting and uh, socially unacceptable to do what these people did. So there is a kind of provocation and also kind of call to judge yourself. It's like Nathan's parable, right? Of you are the man after you've already seen. Oh yeah, these these are jerks, right? They're just people who are who are totally insulting the, uh, the, the person who's giving the feast, um, and, uh, that's going to be the reaction of Israelite, and then you are the one who is doing this to God. Well, but, I mean, you're right, because the gospel age is an age of inaugurated feast, right? But people are still being invited. You can join the feast any time, which is, oh, you know, it doesn't quite match the parable one to one, because it's so spread out in time, whereas this thing you know in in the uh, literal level, the feast would begin, and all the guests would would be expected to have already arrived you know it'd just be in effect well, not a moment in time because it's oriental time <laughs> so but, you know but you wouldn't really you wouldn't want arrive really late the point being. so things things are really stretched out uh, So it is more the case, when I said it really begins with the Last Supper, or the Last Supper is the feast, the Last Supper is the inauguration, but sort of stands for what being united with Christ in his death and resurrection and partaking of him in the bread of life, what that means all through this age. So I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. And I think when we partake of the, the Lord's Supper now, that is, a foretaste of the Messianic banquet. So it is eschatologically significant. Not just a ceremony you go through to look backward. Remember, surely it is that, but it's forward look. We're gonna talk about preaching parables, uh, briefly at least, and then, looks like we will have time, maybe, to get into uh, miracle stories. Okay, and uh, Josh Arp asked during the break, do I mean that the papers would go explicitly through all these steps? No, because uh, it's a little over mechanical, some of it. But I want this to be stuff that is, how do I put it, that stimulates your creativity, but that leaves open how you react to a particular parable. Okay, so uh, the papers don't have to follow you know some particular order they don't have to have these diagrams or anything <laughs> and sometimes some people who've done that in fact in the past have sort of disappointed me because they're just going through the thing mechanically and there's no life in it maybe there's no life in me when i'm doing it i hope not <laughs> but the point is you know this is it's to get your your you stimulated in thinking about the thing, and it's mechanical systems in the service of something that's ultimately not mechanical. Uh, is if you're writing the paper, I'd say write it with fellow students in mind. And there, you know, if you just show them these charts and stuff, they'll probably get bogged down. It's kind of a little bit like the situation um, that I, in hermeneutics I talk about preaching. Don't bring everything that's in your study into the pulpit because it's you know, part of that material is on the way to where you're going to go. So the paper, you want to present something that's a little smoother. Now, sure, it can be writing to fellow students in this class. So if you want to appeal to a chart or something, that's fine. Um, but uh, what I'm looking for is not just a mass of charts, but a coherent, <laughs> uh, a coherent paper. Okay, Preaching Parables. This is uh, Jay. One posing the question, if parables are addressed to a unique situation in the early ministry of Christ, what relevance do they have to the modern church? I'm polarizing things in a way I've already hinted at what some of the solutions are. If, on the other hand, they contain general moral principles, those principles would seem to be independent of any particular situation. So how can one tell what those principles are once one in effect says the parables are independent, virtually, of the situation in Jesus' ministry. I don't think they are independent, right? You've heard me on that. But I'm posing that question as I think of, it's a question that has plagued the church over the centuries. People, as people have groped their way, they've not always achieved clarity about this. Point two is, remember the popular answers that I spoke of somewhat, I oversimplified And uh, at the beginning of the course. One side, A, the exemplary method, do what the disciples did. But that doesn't work too well because either they say sometimes we understand or sometimes they didn't understand and then they ask Jesus. Or do what Jesus did, speak in parables yourself, but we've talked about that. So if you're not gonna do exemplary method, what do you do often, you do uh, an allegorical method, and of course the parables, I've argued many of them are allegories, but there's a danger that they become simply, and the past interpretation, history interpretation of parables, they become simply allegories of church life. If they are allegories of church life and of the life of the individual uh, soul then they are obviously are relevant. They speak to you. But what controls the nature of the, uh, the analogies that you develop? You see, they're in danger. I think as some of the tradition of interpretation has not scholarly interpretation in the last couple of centuries, but I'm talking about ecclesiastical interpretation, has, has sometimes uprooted them from the unique historical setting in which they originate. Third point then, so those are the polarities, right? What do we do with this? Third point is, beginning of what my answer would be, the parables as parables of the kingdom. A, often parables are said explicitly to be about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like. And as such, they look forward to the eschaton. Either narrowly interpreted, new heaven and new earth, or broadly interpreted, that is, if, epic of of final realization of the promises of um, salvation from the Old Testament. And remember then, as we now know looking back, that the crucifixion and the resurrection are the definitive establishment of this new world order. When Christ ascends, he ascends in a resurrected body. He is the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth in terms of the very constitution of his resurrected body. And Point B, the parables, if they're parables of the kingdom, are also parables of the king. Now, that gives us a certain handle on things in terms of the kind of thinking that Ritterboss and Gaffin and others have developed in biblical theology and redemptive historical reflection. That what we're talking about is not simply a, a direct reading as if the parables had no historical roots, you know, as a God just God is speaking to me here and now. I mean, he does speak here and now, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that there's a texture that is deeper and richer than the here and now, okay? So the, the danger is that that's just collapsed into here and now where, oh, there are allegories about the soul or about the, the church here and now without this redemptive historical structure, which I'm trying to bring in. So we've, there are parables uh, of the king and of the kingdom. Point four, then, is concerns the kingship of Jesus, and subpoints under that, A, Jesus is king then and now. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. That provides continuity, and we can then say Jesus still speaks these parables to you and to me here and now, because he is alive forever and he is the same. Okay, so there is uh, a deep continuity that is um, based on the continuity in the person of Jesus himself. And uh, B, Jesus is now exalted, and as a result of his exaltation and the pouring out of the Spirit, the parables, in many respects, have become overt teaching. That is, you know, in the teaching of the apostles. So there is a discontinuity, if you will, right? A development in redemptive history that affects the very structure of the significance of Jesus speaking in parables. And it fitted a situation of Jesus' earthly ministry which was unique in many respects. And uh, the uh, change with respect to Jesus' own humanity in his exaltation and the revelation of the secrets in uh, the apostolic teacher has changed everything. And then C, coherence, to work out. So I'm asserting continuity, C, I'm asserting discontinuity, right? How do I do that in a way that's non-paradoxical? I think I say I do it by going through the cross and the resurrection, by thinking, as it were, redemptive historically. Right? And the cross and the resurrection assert and well on the one hand that it's the same Jesus who goes through the whole thing, and on the other hand, define the nature of the changes. So if you want a diagram, full of diagrams today, I guess, it would be like this. That here, here you have a timeline. And rather than saying the pure continuity thing is we have general principles up there, you see, which just can be applied at any time. Uh, and, but it's, it turns into general moral principles or spiritual principles. And the opposite extreme would be basically we've got stuff that is arising out of Jesus' earthly life and then basically it just terminates, right? So uh, now irrelevant because past. But rather than either of those, basically, what you've got is that the whole thing in terms of the kingdom of God, in terms of the accomplishments of God's promises and so on, the whole thing comes to a focus in the crucifixion and the resurrection, and from there also expands outward. So that rather than you know, traveling across like this, you travel through the center point and think about what is happening there in every case for any particular parable. Uh, and in fact, you can draw that same diagram. You know, I have this book on the shadow of Christ and the law of Moses and the issue of the relevance of the Old Testament law. same diagram, I think, is relevant for understanding the problems. On the other hand, on the one hand, with the dispensationalism that says the law was divine when it was there, but now it's essentially irrelevant, versus theonomy, which tends to say, well, unless there have been a few things, but by and large carry over everything for which you don't have an explicit New Testament teaching that, uh, that puts a particular law out of gear. Well, the trouble is, you see, that's a kind of inorganic way of thinking of the fulfillment, <laughs> fulfillment that has come in Christ. Same thing, I think, can be then applied with respect to parables. Now, remember also that we are helped by the fact that the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, already write from a post-resurrection perspective and that they write, first of all, to say what happened indeed, all right? This was what Jesus was like. This is what he taught. This is what he said. This is how he acted. But they wrote those things uh, making sure with respect to historical accuracy, precisely because they wanted to say if this was what he was like, it is what he is like, you see. So they themselves are wanting to underline the continuity. And all four have as a climax the crucifixion and the resurrection as the decisive culmination point and transition point with respect to the promises of God and the kingdom of God and so on. So, understanding the evangelists and their, their own view as writers helps us to see the bearing of Jesus' earthly life on us. Let me give some examples now of primarily this diagram uh, behind me. The parable of the sower, the issue, of course, is partly of understanding, right, and of then bearing fruit as a result of receiving the Word of God. The true disciple is the one who holds fast until the crucifixion, which is the big scandal, which is all the disciples desert him, right? That's the issue of, are you going to bear fruit? You may have been a disciple. You may have looked pretty good up to that point. Or the parable of the wicked steward, which, Matt, you're still playing to do that one? (laughs) Parable of the wicked steward. The crisis for the wicked steward is being thrown out. And is that paralleled by Israel being thrown out of their stewardship in reference to, of course, again, the decision of will they accept a crucified Messiah? The parable of the fig tree in the vineyard, Luke 13, 6 to 9, the gardener, whatever you call him, the fellow who's taking care of it, says, give me one more year, and I'll dig about it, and so on. Well, the one more year, in effect, is not necessarily literally a year until the end of Jesus' ministry, but he's saying there's more time to test whether this fig tree is going to yield fruit. There's more time for Israel. Not very much, basically. Uh, and the crucifixion and the resurrection bring that to a climax, too. Luke 19:11 to 27, the nobleman goes away to receive kingly power. That's obviously parallel the going away with the resurrection and the ascension. The mustard seed, Luke 13, 18 to 19, is the fruitfulness of the growth of the kingdom and again coming to focus in the fruitfulness of the, of the resurrection and its implications, of course, for people who are joined to Christ. So my point is then that parable after parable is not unrelated to what we see in the crucifixion and the resurrection and I believe then that along with the uh, the general guidelines of the apostolic teaching in the letters help us to move uh, forward in, in um, with confidence in reflecting on the applications. Well, I'm thinking of the fact that most of the parables operate on two levels, a level of a literal story and a level of a spiritual meaning if you want to call it that the level of Jesus' ministry. But there's an organic unity between those when you think of Jesus as mediator of creation and mediator of redemption. The parables are, first of all, stories about Jesus as mediator of redemption, but they use creational analogies to do that. So at the cosmic level, when you're thinking of the whole history of the world and of God as leading forward the whole world to its consummation, You can integrate the picture of what God cares to do with ordinary sheep with what he does with his people. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying that will work with every parable, but it's something, again, to think about. Miracle stories. Uh, This is Roman numeral 4a. And um, I was going to give you an introductory example. Yeah. Yeah. Luke 8, 26 to 39, I'm not sure I will. We're we're likely to run out of time, I'm afraid. So let me skip that. B, general principles in approaching miracle stories. I am going to follow, in an overly mechanical way, (laughs) what I've done with parables. Uh, Just to, again, stimulate us I do think there are some parallels, but I do think we have to be careful as well because the parallels are not, don't always go on all fours. They don't always correspond perfectly. Miracle stories are their own thing and not simply acted out parables, as I think we'll see. But uh, having said that to qualification, let's see what we can do. So point one is the challenge of miracle stories. This is under the general principles. And uh, just as we might ask about parables, both the why and the what, so we might ask about miracles. Why are there miracles? Well, many people, I think this is the less of a problem. Parables, why did Jesus do that when our unsanctified instincts are just blurt everything out? <laughs> With miracles, we may feel that we understand why, namely, that the miracles an authentication of the Messiah and a demonstration of divine power? And they are. I think that is part of the answer. But even so, there are why questions that remain in terms of some of the details. If, if the purpose is the authentication of the Messiah and a demonstration of divine power, why, for instance, did Jesus refuse to work miracles at some times and why did he take somewhat odd roots in doing so at other times for instance touching the leper we talked about that when he heals the leper in Luke 5 he touches him which is a social faux pas from the standpoint of ordinary Israelite that that is shocking element or he forbids the leper, that same man, but also in some other cases, forbids people to tell and spread the news. Now, you know, if you're going to do things that are an authentication of the Messiah and demonstration of divine power, well, you know, in other words, there's still some puzzling things if you think this is just straightforward. And then the paralytic comes to him to be healed, and he says, Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> And, and you can go through these things, there are quite a few things that that are not quite as straightforward as people might like them to be. Uh, B is the what of miracles. In what way are they significant beyond the mere display of power? In other words, if you're just going to display power, then do it once and get it over with. <laughs> Why Well, okay, so you multiply miracles uh, so that more people can see them. But is there any significance, you see, to the particularities of miracles? I think there is. So again, this is point two then. We may face, in analogy with parables, the possibility of two interpretive extremes. Now, this has not been, you know, in modern times, I think a lot of discussion about miracle stories in scholarly circles has been whether they really occurred. Because, you know, the anti-supernatural hang-ups. And I already told you I'm not going to discuss that. I think they did. <laughs> right? And, and we, I want us to get on with the thing, right? Although, apologetically, obviously, you still have to deal with that. But uh, uh, because of that, this has not been such a problem. Because the scholarly forces have focused in other directions. But potentially, the same problem is still there. Namely, the, the, the extremes of extreme elaboration of interpretation and the extreme of simplification. The extreme of simplification being that there is only one point per miracle and that easily discernible. For instance, in a year, I probably should have gone through this example because I'm going to use it some. Well, let, let's at least read the passage so that uh, we know about it. It's in Luke 8. It's the demoniac. The Gadarene demoniac, Luke 8.26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is up across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many a time it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Well, that even is not the end of the story because there's a reaction of the townspeople, verses 34 to 39, taking up considerable space. But even if you just cut the story off there, there are already some interesting things about this thing. You expect, well, Jesus just get on with it, cast out the demons. There's all this discussion. And the demons don't come out right of the way. He commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man, and the evil spirit doesn't, <laughs> you know, doesn't do it, at least not right away. So there's peculiarities of that kind. But what I want to draw your attention to is, for this story, if you use the, uh, the end of extreme simplification, that is, Jesus has power to save uh, this man from the devil, or the healing of the leopard, Jesus has power to heal he, the healing of the paralytic, Jesus has power to heal. Right, you're right, you start getting, pretty soon, it's the same lesson, right? Uh, time after time. The other uh, extreme of uh, elaboration, the demoniac's lack of clothes corresponds to mankind's loss of the garment of righteousness. His dwelling not in a house is the lack of heavenly dwelling. His dwelling among the tombs is spiritual death. Is breaking bonds of other men is enmity with mankind. Well, I mean, you, know, you can go on. I, I wrote that up <laughs> myself. You can do it if you want to do it. Uh, you can imagine, you know, something that thoroughly allegorizes this story, basically, and it's the picture of being rescued from spiritual death. All right, so we're confronted then with somewhat similar issues to what we have with parables when we start thinking beyond of okay, this is a demonstration of divine power. Third point, what is a miracle story? The size and scope of the genre as with parables. Remember what we did there and said some things were labeled parable, but that they were similar to other things that were not necessarily labeled a parable, that what were pretty, pretty obviously were parables, and then you begin to stand out, and you realize that the genre doesn't have sharp boundaries, but you have not only full-blown stories, long stories, but you have shorter ones and shorter ones, and then you have ones that are just sort of you know a metaphor that is hardly developed at all. Similarly, in miracle stories, we're in a sense in a worse position because the terminology even is not so fixed. There are several words, teros, wonder, dunamis, these are typically in plural, uh, miracles or acts of power, samea and john, but then again you see you're using terminology, the different gospel writers are different. But there's not a lot of use of that terminology actually, until you get to Acts, with Acts. There are summary statements that have that terminology. Here, it's mostly just a description. this is what Jesus did uh, without the actual technical terminology. What, about, what, are, what is the miracle story then, in terms of genre? There are uh, a, full-blown miracle stories, that is, Pericope length stories or episode long stories, separate episodes in the gospel whose main focus is on some problem often with a particular individual who is uh, tormented by demons or who is uh, sick or ill or uh, physically uh, has problems in one way or another. And then that Jesus responds to that. There's also, of course, the stilling of storm. There are nature miracles too. But basically what we're talking about is there are some things whose focus is clearly on the uh, story of Jesus' uh, miraculous works in response to some problem in the situation. But then B, there are also what you might call one line miracles. Luke twenty two, fifty-one. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Well, that's really not a a whole episode. It's part of an episode, right? Uh, And the focus of the episode is on Jesus' arrest and not really on the miracle. And then, see, there are what I call (laughs) demi-miracles. Again, that's my term. Where Jesus shows extraordinary insight, but where one may sometimes not know whether is this a miraculous insight or is it just a very keen, wise human insight, <laughs> or both, right? Because we're dealing, of course, with Jesus, who is who's both God and man. and uh, But what I'm dealing with, in effect, are phenomena where the text really describes what happens without... Thoroughly analyzing it for us and we're left with a feeling, well, something remarkable happened, but what do we say that thing was? Luke 7.40, the uh, incident with the sinful woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Uh, the Pharisee, this is back in uh, 39, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, that is the woman and how she was kissing Jesus' feet and, and caring for him. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men own money to a certain moneylender, and so on. Well, you probably remember the story. Jesus, and it's 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 ironic, right? Because Jesus not only knows that this woman is a sinner, but he knows what Simon is thinking. <laughs> Uh, namely that Jesus is really not a prophet because he doesn't realize this woman is a sinner. And then the, the irony being, of course, Jesus demonstrates that he's a prophet. But the reasoning that Jesus gives to Simon almost has the effect of saying, can't you see, Simon, that anybody can see that this woman is a sinner? Or she wouldn't be responding with his lavish love. So it's almost that he himself, what would be a miracle of insight, right, both into the woman and into Simon, Jesus takes away some of the miraculous character of it by his explanation. It is more, it becomes something between a miracle and a wise observation of somebody who knows human nature so well that he can understand where the woman's coming from without her saying anything. So is this a miracle or isn't it, right? And, I mean, I don't, uh, on some level, it doesn't matter, right, of how, I mean, Jesus is God and man, to ask how did he come into these things is sort of a, an unanswerable question, right, because there's a deep mystery in it. But you could understand how, to a degree, some of it would be at least plausibly explainable by saying, well, you know, he had insight into human nature. Uh, Luke 9, 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Similar kind of problem in a way. Because, you know, you could say, okay, this is miraculous insight. Or you could say, Jesus had been with these guys long enough to know what they were like. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat how does he know that, right? And he's just going to predict in verse 34 that Peter will deny him three times, which seems to be a miraculous insight. Luke twenty-two ten to uh, 12. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher ask, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room all furnished. Make preparations there. Is that a miracle or is it something Jesus had arranged beforehand? Who knows? Luke 4.30, oh yeah, this is a nice one. Luke 4.30 is the synagogue at Nazareth where they reject him and they lead him out to the brow of the hill to kill him. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. How did he do that? (laughs) Uh, You know, and again, it's one of these things. It's not a whole episode. it's something that just leaves you wondering, is this a miracle? Maybe it is. Okay. So the point then is, I think there is a point, namely that the full blown miracles uh towards which we typically address our attention, though they are very special and deserve our attention, they are perhaps not so utterly isolated from the whole of who Jesus is and what he's doing all the time.